0: Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, Good evening. Uh, I'm Kimberly Hutchings, the head of the International Relations Department, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this, I think the third uh, major event that we've hosted in the last three weeks. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Gideon Rackman here uh, to speak this evening. Gideon has a very long and distinguished career in the world of journalism, including a long stint at The Economist and most recently as Foreign Correspondent for the Financial Times. Many of you I know will know his work, have read his blogs, and some of you presumably will also have read his book, A Zero-Sum World, which is going to talk about uh, this evening. Um, Gideon's distinction in his career has been marked recently by being awarded Foreign Commentator of the Year Award, in the Comments uh, Award, um, and I look forward very much to hear what he has to say. Gideon.
1: Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction and for inviting me here tonight, and thanks for, to you all for coming to, to listen. Uh, Shortly before coming here, I took a quick look at some of the headlines in the Financial Times over the past week, and they included anger at Germany boils over, deep fractures damage hopes of G20 breakthrough, U.S. attacks China on economic policies, U.S. warning to China on maritime rows. And, of course, these are very disparate events, but I do think that they are, in some sense, connected. And I think that the connection is that they're all examples in different ways of the manner in which international economic tensions are now spinning over into global politics. And that's the argument of my book and the argument that I'd like to make to you tonight, which is that the global economic crisis has also profoundly changed international politics and that these changes got underway initially with the, with the economic crisis in late 2008 and we're still beginning to see patterns play out. It, it, this, this hasn't finished yet. But broadly speaking, I think if I had to identify three areas where the new economic crisis has has raised tensions between the world's major powers, uh, these would be the three. I'll I'll, uh, enumerate them briefly and then return to them later in the talk. The first is the rise in in US-Chinese tensions. You see this in talk of global currency wars, you see it in accusations of protectionism, and also in the increasingly obvious strategic rivalry between the two countries in the Pacific. And I think that has its roots in the fact that they are now the world's number one and number two economies. China overtook Japan earlier this year. And also in the sort of differential impact of the economic crisis on the two countries. So broadly speaking, I think two years in, we're seeing that the powers of Asia, the emerging powers, uh, China, India, but also uh, outside Asia, Brazil and so on, seem to be doing much better than the established powers of the West. And that that Uh, shift in economic power is also being reflected in a shift in political power which is then causing friction. The second uh, area that I would look at very much in the news today obviously is the rise in intra-European tensions, the crisis in the Euro and the threat to the European Union itself and I would have thought a couple of days ago that maybe it was a bit of a stretch to say that the crisis in the Euro threatened the EU itself but actually just two days ago the President of the European Union Herman Van Rompuy made the point for me and said, you know, if the the euro is in trouble, if the euro breaks up the European Union itself will begin to break up, which I thought was uh, an interesting remark probably an ill-advised remark, but gives you an idea of how uh, high the stakes are now The third area that uh, I'll I'll look at later uh, is this crisis in the system of global governance Now global governance is a bit of a mouthful but I think that one of the things that became apparent in the aftermath of the financial crisis was that uh, as George Osborne likes to tell us uh, here in Britain, talking of the economic crisis here, we're all in this together. And I think that the major powers initially, there was quite a strong urge to cooperate. And you saw the first summit meeting of the G20 called by that uh, famous unilateralist, or alleged unilateralist, George W. Bush. He assembled everybody in, in Washington. And then there, there was a further uh, G20 summit in London a few months later. And that, for a while, seemed like you know, really quite. A positive thing to come out of a difficult situation, which was a big advance for international cooperation. But I think we've seen most recently in the G20 summit only last week in Seoul, that this organisation is actually now a really rather troubled organisation, and I think there are reasons why the uh, economic tensions that, uh, that sprung up are now proving very, very difficult to resolve in a kind of amicable political manner among the major powers. I think that if you step back a little bit and say, well, you know, what are the, what are the trends that are driving uh, these these tensions between within Europe, between the US and China, and then in the forums where major powers try to discuss things? Uh, I think two big factors have changed post-2008. The first is to do with how we see globalisation. Now, I think we're we used to thinking of globalisation as above all an economic trend, you know, breaking down of... Uh, barriers to trade and investment and so on. But I, I think that globalization was the mega trend of the last 30 years, not just economically, but, but also politically, because essentially what it did was it replaced a system that we'd got terribly used to in the Cold War, where there were two worlds, a capitalist world and a communist world, and then within the capitalist world there was a group of developed nations, the G7, uh, which was essentially Europe, the US, plus Japan, and, and a group of less developed nations, with a single economic system, which uh, starts developing with the opening of China in 1978. And by the time of the economic crisis of 2008, has has really incorporated all the world's major political powers, are taking part in this single global capitalist system and appear to be benefiting from it. Uh, So that in a piece of jargon, it's an ugly piece of jargon, but what I discovered is, it seems to be very popular in China when I was last there. Uh, it, they, they like, the Chinese like to talk about a win-win world and how globalisation is a win-win situation for everybody. So they've adopted this piece of, of, of Western jargon. And I think that is sort of how the world felt pre-2008. And I think that that's begun to change. Or rather, particularly in the West, there's now increasing questioning about whether this new world order as the Americans called it uh, that that came into being with the end of the Cold War uh, whether we're still really comfortable with with that new world order it felt like a very American centred western centric uh, world order but now I think with the sense of a shift in economic and political power to rising powers the west is less comfortable with things and hence the title of my book I think increasingly we in the west are wondering at least aloud whether things aren't a win-win, but whether it's a zero-sum, whether, in fact, rather than this being a mutually beneficial relationship between, say, the United States and China, whether a richer and more powerful China might actually mean, well, a relatively poorer, relatively weaker United States. And within that important relationship, the broader question about whether richer and more powerful emerging powers mean relatively weaker, relatively poorer... um, Western powers. Now the debate's not over, but I think it's quite interesting that it's even begun, that these questions that appear to be settled have now reopened. And again, to quote to you what people have been saying, world leaders have been saying, Obama in his recent trip to India, making the case for trade, signing lots of contracts, but in interviews with the Indian press said, look, you have to realise that the debate over globalisation has reopened in the United States. It's not obvious to people anymore that Uh, a booming Indian economy is good for us. People associate it with outsourcing. They associate it with uh, job losses. So uh, don't assume that this uh, case has been won forever. And indeed, if you look at what's happening back in Washington, uh, just a few weeks before the midterm elections, Congress passed a bill which would uh, allow them to impose tariffs on on Chinese goods in retaliation for alleged uh, Chinese currency manipulation. Now, where that particular bill will go, we'll have to wait and see. The Senate still have to, have to vote on it, and, uh, and even if it goes through, Obama might well veto it. But I think it's a sign of how things are changing. Now, for the moment, Western leaders are sticking very much to the win-win rhetoric, so that uh, when Cameron, David Cameron, was in China, he too took up this zero-sum language and said, uh, I see our relationship with China as one of mutual benefit not a zero-sum game I was grateful to that uh, plug from the Prime Minister even if he was contradicting me um, but in this Cameron was, was actually simply echoing Obama who, in, who said before his first visit to China we welcome China's efforts to play a greater role on the world stage power doesn't need to be a zero-sum game nations need not fear the success of each other and that is still the official line and you can totally understand why it would be the official line imagine the impact if Obama said the opposite He turned up uh, just before arriving in China and said, actually, we really don't like the rise of China and we're going to try and block you. He cannot possibly say that. But one wonders whether, you know, when something is repeated and repeated and repeated like that, it's a bit like, uh, you know, a sort of troubled marriage saying, you know, we're really committed to this, it's all fine and so on. There there is a sense that uh, there's a kind of lurking anxiety beneath that. Uh, And as Obama said, the debate has reopened. Um... And I think that points to a second big change that, that has flowed from the economic crisis, a loss of uh, American power, prestige, and self-confidence linked to uh, the very troubled state of the American economy. Uh, when I was in China recently, about three weeks ago, I picked up a paper, and there was, there was a statistic saying growth rate of 9.6% in China, and that number rang a bell. And the reason it rang a bell is that the unemployment rate in America is 9.6% and uh, And, in fact that 's arguably being uh, you know putting it on the bright side because once you incorporate discouraged workers, the ones who haven 't registered to be unemployed because they 've stopped looking for work, the unemployment rate in America is about seventeen percent, which is you know close to depression era levels um, and I think that as well as affecting america 's mood and how it feels about globalization and whether things are still at working out for the United States in the, in the globalised world, it also affects how America's leaders, political leaders, military leaders, think about their deployable power around the world. I think America is suddenly coming to the awareness that there are economic limits to their power; that not every they can't necessarily assume that they will always be able to afford this global hegemony, which has uh, American troops stationed all over the world, CENTCOM in the Gulf, the troops in Japan, the troops in, in, in Korea 80,000 troops still in Europe it's a huge and expensive operation and uh, Michael Mullen, the, chief of the, the, head, the head of the Joint Chiefs, asked in a recent interview, what is the single greatest threat to American national security he replied, it's the budget deficit because he can see that you know, at a certain point there will be big pressure on American military spending um, and you can see why. They have a budget deficit, I think it's around 9 to 10% at the moment. As they, There's no sign of anybody actually trying to rein that in, but at some point they will have to. And something like 50% of the dis- discretionary spending in the American budget is military spending. That's where they're going to have to start looking to cut it, unless they can somehow have an extraordinary revival of growth. And that, of course, then begins to affect uh, the way, the hard power on which America relies. And it's interesting that when Mullen made those comments, he was in the context of an interview he was giving at the time of the British defence cuts, and he said, you know, I look at what's happening in Britain now, and I ask myself whether that's us in 10 years' time, whether, um, you know, the United States will have to go through a similarly painful process of defence cuts. And indeed, when Obama, th- the thought has also occurred to his boss, when Obama announced the American surge in Afghanistan about a year ago and said, we're, we're sending in 30,000 more troops, he gave a, well, it was an odd speech, because he simultaneously said, we're sending in the troops, and they're going to withdraw before the next election. But, but there was another oddity to it, which is that he said, we simply can't afford to keep doing this. It was the first time that an American president that I know of has talked about their military commitments... Overseas, in terms of limits. Normally, it's whatever it takes. And Obama said, I think correctly, you know, in the end, our ability to do all this is dependent on the health of our domestic economy. So that these links are beginning to be made. And then a final link that I think that. Uh, alarms the Americans is the knowledge that their budget deficit is not entirely domestically funded. In fact, I think it's about 50% funded by overseas purchases of U.S. treasuries. The single biggest purchaser is, of course, China. And there was this rather humbling moment uh, early in the presidency where Hillary Clinton, uh, perhaps again foolishly, uh, made this explicit in China and actually said, you know, appeal to the Chinese to keep buying U.S. treasury bonds. And you have this strange circular thing where there is this rivalry between the two countries, but in some sense, China is funding the American military. China is funding the war, the war in Afghanistan by purchasing American debt. Uh, now, I won't go into it uh, in, in the talk. There are, there are all sorts of... complicated. We can perhaps talk about it in the discussion. There are complicated debates about... Could China really dump US treasuries? Wouldn't they be destroying the value of their own holdings and so on? There is an argument that the two countries are locked in a kind of new economic version of mutually assured destruction where the Chinese have to keep buying these bonds to support the value of their their current holdings. But I think that, yes, it's it's a difficult situation for both parties, but more difficult for the United States would be my feeling. And although I've talked a lot about the US and its sense of eroding power. The same applies to Europe, of course. You just have to read the papers, look at the television today. The European Union is, uh, the euro is in a crisis, and behind that lies a solvency crisis of uh, European states. Uh, even Germany, which is being looked upon to write all these checks to the rest of us, uh, has, you know, had to have a, a big austerity drive over the last decade. And that's one of the reasons why I think, incidentally, they feel so sore about having to bail out the Greeks, potentially bail out the Irish, because they've, they've experienced cuts in unemployment, benefit, closure of public services, and so on. And that, too, has an effect both on the soft power of the European Union, in the sense that the, the prestige of Europe, I think that... Uh, you know, I was when I was uh, when the first leg of this crisis was happening in, in Greece. I was actually in the U.S. and then in Asia, and there was a the one common denominator was there was a sort of barely disguised contempt for Europe and what a mess we were in in both New York and in and in and in India. They just thought, you know, it's over, and I think the Europeans sort of sense that's how people are thinking about them, and it's not not a very comfortable feeling. But of course, it also has an impact, not the. EU is a major global military power, but we, we have, you know, there are plenty of European troops deployed in Afghanistan and so on. And here, military budgets are also coming under pressure. Now, at this stage, I would like to backtrack a little, because um, you'll notice that the, the argument is constructed around, if you like, a before and after, But before the, how the world looked before the economic crisis and how it looks like uh, afterwards. But I think to, to understand better the changes in our current situation you do have to look back at how the, the globalised world was, was constructed and had the assumptions, uh, the kind of ideological, intellectual assumptions that we made about how the world was going to work and then see, well, what holds up and what doesn't hold up anymore. So about, as I say, about half the book, or 60% or so, in fact, is devoted to the years up to 2008. And I divide that period into what I call an age of transformation, which is between 78 to 91, and then what I call an age of optimism between 91 and 2008. The age of transformation from 78 to 91, I call it that because I think that's the period in which, in a really remarkably short period in historical terms, just 13 years, you have the creation of this globalised economic system and with all the political implications that that it brings with it. And let me just outline the series of events that, that created that world. I think... The first, the most significant, and probably the, uh, the least noticed at the time was the opening of China in 1978. Uh, that um, was an event that, uh, you know, in, in due course, shook the world but was barely kind of remarked upon. Everybody was focused on uh, things like the, uh, the Chinese invasion of Vietnam in '79, the democracy war period, and so on. But that's when it all got rolling. But six months after Deng pushes through these policies in in 1978, you have Margaret Thatcher coming to power here in Britain and then uh, a year later Reagan comes to power in the United States and you get a resurgence of free market ideology and a resurgence of belief in in capitalism um, and a kind of rolling back of the welfare state, which has global implications, partly because it's emulated around the world. Policies like privatisation which are uh, pioneered here in the UK then become globally uh, sort of uh, emulated There's a, there are advisors to Thatcher who write a book called Privatising the World and there is an, an element of that uh, going on and one of the first things Thatcher does is to abolish exchange controls which allows uh, the, or the uh, growth of the City of London then uh, there's a sort of ideological argument going on in Europe in this period, because just as Thatcher is pursuing the kind of free market, globalizing policies, at the same time, uh, Mitterrand in France, for two years, pursues a policy of what you might call socialism in one country. They, they put up tariff barriers, uh, they nationalize the banks, but uh, the French policy quickly runs into trouble, and there's a reversal in France. And so, that if you like, the Thatcherite ideas of... Uh, encouraging trade, encouraging investment, globalisation, win out in that sense in in Europe. And you see that reflected in the creation of the European single market in 1986, Uh, a rare uh, brief period of cooperation between Jacques Delors and Margaret Thatcher. Um, But that was interesting enough. But of course, events in the other half of Europe are even more dramatic. You have Gorbachev coming to power in the Soviet Union in the mid-1980s. And in a very brief period both reforming and then ultimately helping to destroy the Soviet Union. It's just five years between his coming to power and the dissolution of the USSR in 1991. And in between that, of course, you get 1989, the the kind of iconic year uh, when the fall fall of the Berlin Wall. And that's um, of enormous political significance, obviously, but also of economic significance, because suddenly we have emerging markets on our doorstep here in Europe, and people refer to Eastern Europe as the China next door, and a whole bit of the world that had been kind of walled off from the global capitalist system is suddenly integrated into it. It's not just a European event, Latin America also is changing profoundly in this brief period of 13 years, this age of transformation, so that uh, there's the debt crisis in Latin America in 1982, which has both profound uh, economic and political effects, what it effectively does is to discredit economically it discredits the whole policy or target policies pursued by authoritarian governments, and you get simultaneously a wave of democratization and an opening to the global economy, so that uh, you know in the early '80s argentina brazil etc uh, uh, peru are all uh, military governments or at least one-party states. By the end of the 90s, they're democracies and they are opening up. And uh, you have, for example, in Mexico, partly actually in reaction to what what happens in Europe in 1989, the Mexicans suddenly think, you know, we're being left out of this competition for investment. And there's reading up about the history of the North American free trade area. It happens, or the idea occurs to uh, the the leader of Mexico at the time, Salinas, because he goes to the World Economic Forum, in in, Europe in in 1990 just after the fall of the Berlin Wall and he finds nobody's interested in talking to him because there's such excitement about investing in Eastern Europe that uh, Mexico, and at that point he thinks okay, well we've got got to have a project we've got to have a sort of globalising project and out of that he then meets Carla Hills, who's the US Trade Secretary at Davos, and they dream up what becomes the North American Free Trade Area so you can see how, although these events are kind of, in some ways, discrete events they all flow into each other because people imitate what seems to be working and that's the prevailing ideology of the period and I think that although as I say 1989 is the dramatic year the one that's the, the telegenic year I think in a way maybe historically 1991 will come to be seen as at least as significant in the creation of this globalized world because in 1991 you get four events you get uh, opening of India which really is the last major power to to join the kind of globalisation game if you like and that's provoked by a very severe economic crisis in India. Uh, Manmohan Singh who was then finance minister is still around now as prime minister um, goes into a cabinet meeting explains how grim the situation is. India's actually had to ship gold to, to London to reassure its creditors and on the basis of that they decide that they're going to have to really start dismantling the uh, inward-looking economic policies that India has pursued since 1948, and they start opening up to foreign investment, and from that you get the the growth of... And they also dismantle the licensing uh, system which had crimped Indian industry and by the mid-1990s the uh, growth of the IT industry in Bangalore has become one of the kind of icons of globalisation. So that's a very significant event in itself. But you're also getting... um, S- several other things happening in that year. You have the Gulf War, uh, which, in which America suddenly rediscovers that after Vietnam, where they've been very understandably reticent about using military power, that actually they have a, an army that can win wars in, in a few weeks on the other side of the world. And there's uh, President George H.W. Bush says, you know, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome. We've, we've kind of... We're back, essentially. Um, so that... Builds American confidence, then, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union itself. The, 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 the Soviet flag is lowered over the Kremlin for the last time on Christmas Day, 1991, and suddenly America is the sole superpower. And not only that, uh, in the late 1980s, America had been very concerned about Japan. You know, the, there was a strong period of paranoia about the Japanese. You know, books like Rising Sun, the some novel by Michael Crichton about how the Japanese are about to take over the United States, the Japanese investors by the Rockefeller Center, but the Japanese property bubble bursts in 1990, and by 91 it's becoming apparent that this alleged threat from Japan is actually not so much of a threat. So we're left with the US apparently standing alone, having won the Cold War, the center of this globalized, the core of this globalized economy, and a really, really incredible sense of Optimism and power in the United States, which I think then lasts from 1991 to 2008, the economic crisis. Even despite 9 11, I think the US still feels uh, pretty confident about the state of its economy, about the power of its military, and so on. Now, this age of optimism, um, I think, is defined in, in very large respect by. American ideas and American economic power but the thing, I think the thing that makes it distinctive as, a, as an international system is that it's, uh, it's a period a rather maybe we will come to see it as a transient and unique period when all the world's major powers have reason to be content with the way the world's going for them and with the world that globalisation has created or appears to have created. Uh, the United States because it's the sole superpower the European Union is going through a confident period it uh, between 1995 and 2005 I think it is uh, it more than doubles in size it goes from 12 countries to 27 countries as it incorporates the countries of Eastern Europe Uh, there's the creation of the European single currency as well so the EU is uh, in a period of optimism expansion, new projects and so on but uh, even more so uh, this is a period of optimism in emerging powers In, in China everybody was Concerned, uh, or that maybe China was going to enter a period of turmoil after Tiananmen Square in 1989, but in fact, the country stabilises and growth resumes, and it keeps going at nine to ten percent a year, which means that uh, at that rate, the Chinese economy is doubling in size every seven years. So people can see their living standards being transformed in a really quite dramatic way. And India also, which had, you know, long had this sort of slight complex about uh, whatever the grandeur of the culture and the size of the country, it was, a, you know, a, not a terribly successful economy, um, seemed to be, you know, in when I was growing up, the image of India was of poverty, famine, Mother Teresa, Uh, and yet suddenly it's displaced by this whole new set of images about dynamism in Bangalore now of course it's a huge complicated country but but there is a sense that as the BJP say in their election campaign uh, towards the end of the decade this is a period of India shining that India is coming out, and Latin America admittedly goes through a slightly bumpier period but if you look by the end of it by 2008, Brazil is, one, is recognized as a major emerging power, a very fashionable country. It's a member of the famous BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and, uh, and also a country that is now uh, has a very high profile on the world stage, partly thanks to a charismatic president, Lula, and so on. So for different reasons, uh, or perhaps you know, to some extent the same reason, the sense that the globalized world is working well, uh, all these countries feel that they 're uh, content with the system, and in two thousand and seven, the year before everything goes bang or pop or whatever word you want to use is, uh, there is um it 's the fastest period of uh, global growth uh, uh, for some thirty years, and um, there are quite rather ecstatic uh, op eds in The Wall Street Journal about how fantastically the world system is going so um, but the idea underpinning this economic growth is a series of ideas about how the world is working and they're particularly uh, American ideas which I think allow the Americans to not worry too much about the rise of alternative sources of power the rise of a China or so on uh, these ideas uh, I would say that are the, 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 uh, Deep faith in the triumph of democracy is the first one, so that you have Francis Fukuyama in 1989 writing the famous and much uh, attacked essay on the end of history. Uh, But what Fukuyama actually meant was not that, you know, history had stopped and nothing would ever happen again. Uh, What he actually meant was that the ideological argument was over. That there was no plausible alternative to liberal democracy. And actually, if you go back and read the book, it's got quite interesting statistics about the number of countries that had become democratic over the course of centuries. But whatever the merits of the argument, it's deeply influential. And there is an ingrained belief in the United States in this period that democracy is the way of the world, that all countries will eventually come around to it, and that that makes the world a less alarming place because. Uh, they will essentially, globalisation in its political form is going to be Americanization, that these countries will look more like America. And associated with that is a sense, uh, a theory called the democratic peace, which is the argument that, you know, as countries become democratic, they're not going to fight with each other. And therefore... Uh, any sense that you know the traditional theory I believe in international relations, I never studied it myself, but that uh, rising powers and uh, and uh, established powers tend to clash well, maybe that theory had been repealed because if everybody 's capitalist, if everybody 's tied together by a uh, web of mutual economic interest, if everybody 's becoming democratic, you know maybe maybe we c- it won 't be a zero sum world it will be this win-win world. And that is uh, rhetoric that is common to all American presidents. Clinton talks in this way, but actually so does George W. Bush, and so does Barack Obama. And uh, the pop- it's popularized again by uh, Tom Friedman, uh, the New York Times columnist who develops, well, I think he calls it the McDonald's theory of international relations, which is that no country, uh, w- w- no two countries that both have McDonald's in them have ever gone to war. Um, and uh, actually, this theory doesn't survive the uh, Balkan Wars because, in fact, it turns out Belgrade did have McDonald's in it. But nonetheless, um, the, the argument, uh, the underlying argument is, is meant seriously, which is that as, you, as consumer culture spreads, as people get richer, as the sort of global consumer culture is created, um, well, sources of conflict will sort of disappear and, you know, these arguments, you'll be familiar with them. They're, they're around us even now. People, people will say, look, uh, look how, you know, Shanghai is full of Starbucks and draw a political moral from that, that somehow we're all kind of becoming the same, one culture, one global culture. I think associated with these ideas about the spread of democracy and the spread of the, uh, peace through democracy, there's also an idea of the triumph Of markets and the triumph of market ideology, because I think another lesson that the Americans drew from the end of the Cold War was that the reason we won was that our system worked and the Soviet system didn't work, and our system worked essentially because it was a market based system. And important next step, therefore, any country that doesn't embrace free markets will fail economically, and next step, if they embrace free markets, they will, in a sense, be embracing democratic values, because embedded in economic freedom is uh, political freedom. And the, the way the argument was generally made was, you know, we're living in an inf- in information age. If you, do, if you censor, if you don't allow the free flow of information, in a sense, you're not going to have a functioning free market economy. But once you accept that that's what you've got to do, all sorts of political changes will flow in its wake. And again, you could. This is a common theme in in, uh, American political commentary. And so when George W. Bush welcomes China into the WTO, he makes a speech in which he reassures Americans that this will work out fine for them because he says, trade freely with China and time is on our side. Um, And then he goes on to say, economic freedom uh, brings in its train other habits of freedom and uh, China will simply have to... uh, become more democratic or it will fail economically and although um, you know maybe that will turn out to be right eventually but it doesn't seem to be working out at the moment and it's worth looking back again at how we thought about the rise of China in 1989. I think if you'd said to people shortly after the tanks had rolled into the centre of Beijing, you know what, in, in 20 years' time and more, China will still be a one-party state, the Communist Party will still be firmly in control, but it will also be massively economically successful, still be growing at 9 to 10% a year. I think most people in the West would have thought, no, nah, that can't work. You know, They've got a choice to make. They're either going to have to loosen up politically or they're going to uh, fail economically. But the idea that the two things could be combined uh, was a difficult thing for the West to get its head around. But what's a, a fact of life that we're having to come to terms with now? Although, of course, it can change again. But at the moment, that's how it looks so I think a a fourth element just before I I move on was also in the resurgence of American confidence but it also has a kind of ideological element is the triumph of technology because again I mentioned a a slight American neuroticism about Japan in the late 80s that's because the American economy isn't doing terribly well and so on but then you have this uh, fantastic surge of creative industries particularly on the west coast the Microsofts, the Googles etc that convinces Americans that they're succeeding in this new economy, but also that there's a link between their success and the embrace of the information age, and again, that a political lesson is drawn from that. They say, look, if you, uh, these are the cutting-edge industries of the future, uh, and they depend on the free flow of information. If you don't accept that, you're going to have trouble. And that's why I think the struggle that we saw earlier this year between Google and China was really quite interesting, because Google is this iconic company of the information age. According to the theory, the Chinese shouldn't be able to censor them or, uh, or kick them out, because they will pay this huge economic price. But in fact, that they get into a struggle, Google objects to censorship, and it seems to me that in the end it's Google, Google that blinks. Uh, that they make a few the Chinese government make a few token concessions but essentially Google decides they have to stay in China and accept a degree of censorship and play by Chinese rules so this idea that the export of western information technology and western uh, companies would inexorably change China I think has not been vindicated so that's how things look around the world uh, in coming up into, into 2008 and then you get the economic crisis which brings us back to the present day I think as I say initially there was a sense that hell you know maybe we're all going to go down together there was a big argument about whether uh, this, this argument over decoupling whether the Asian economies would be able to continue growing with a big crisis in the United States which after all was their major market now two years in to uh go back to those economic figures that I cited at the beginning. The US is doing pretty badly. The European Union is doing pretty badly. Uh, China is is back to growing at 9-10% a year. The Indian economy is doing well. Brazil is doing very well. Uh, Their major problem appears to be stopping the flow of hot capital from the West looking for Higher returns in emerging markets. Now, you know, one should always have a slight caveat that China has an inflation problem. There are all sorts of problems within the Chinese economy. But my sense, and I th- certainly think the sense of people who are having to think about politics and great power relations, is that economic power has shifted to a significant extent from east to west. Uh, sorry, from west to east, um, and that uh, and that that creates uh, a sense that political power is also flowing with it. There was a famous prediction that Goldman Sachs uh, made before the crisis, actually, that by 2027, the Chinese economy would be larger than the the US economy. Uh, Now, if that was the the extrapolation they made before 2027, presumably on current trends, that'll happen rather sooner. There's, of course, not a complete read-across from economic power and the size of an economy to political power, but there sure is some connection. And um, it would be quite a moment uh, if and when China becomes the world's largest economy, um, particularly if there hasn't been political change in China, because by then um, that would be the first time for well over a century that the world's largest economy is not a democracy, thus apparently falsifying one of our major propositions of the age of optimism. Those are the rather kind of abstract uh, considerations, but as I say, I think they come down now to... Uh, three major sources of tension Um, let me just give you a little bit more detail on on how I see things between China and America the the problems within Europe the problems of global governance and then perhaps we can discuss where things go from here in the the question and answer session Um, I think one of the really interesting things that's happening in the American debate about how to deal with China and to deal with this new world is the rehabilitation of intellectual rehabilitation of protectionism I mean in the Uh, in the age of optimism it was probably the least fashionable economic idea in the world after communism and um, now you're beginning to see really quite mainstream economists saying well you know tariffs would be a legitimate response to what uh, we see as China's undervaluation of its currency Uh, so that Paul Krugman a Nobel Prize winner after all has actually called for the imposition of tariffs on China Uh, Fred Bergsten who's the head of the Institute for International Economics in Washington um, which is you know, probably the main economic think tank, has also called for retaliatory action against China and I was, on a personal level, astonished to read an op-ed by my former boss, Bill Emmett, the editor of The Economist, also calling for tariffs in China. And The Economist is, you know, the oldest campaigner for free trade since the mid-19th century. If you had made an argument like that when I was working there, you would have been sort of handcuffed and led from the building. <laughs> so, so I really did wonder what was going on. But I think it's, it's a sign of how... Um, of how the intellectual climate is changing and that's why I think uh, you know I do hear when I talk to friends in Washington and people who follow Congress much more closely than I do that uh, look this protectionist legislation won't go anywhere you know in the end they won't do this and who knows how you know the vicissitudes of legislation in Washington but I I think if I were the Chinese I would be worried by the drift in the argument that it's now become respectable to say this and when that happens things can begin to change There is this new sense of American financial vulnerability that I referred to, Hillary Clinton, the Treasury bills, and all of that. But also I think there's a strategic competition which is beginning to emerge in Asia. Now, this is in a way, it sort of encapsulates this odd mixture of competition and friendship between China, or at least cooperation between China and the U.S., Um, they, uh, somebody said they're called frenemies, you know, they're both friends and enemies. Um, and you see it in the strategic sphere, so that they, they have military-to-military contacts and so on. But equally, they, they plan for wars with each other. Of course they do. That's what uh, militaries do. And I think that the Ameri- on the American side, as they look at technological developments and developments in spending, uh, they're worried about the implied threat to American dominance of the Pacific, so that... Uh, developments in missile technology mean that the aircraft carriers, which are the sort of source of American naval dominance, are now more vulnerable than they've uh, ever been. And a couple of years ago, China also rather kind of mysteriously blasted a satellite out of the sky, which uh, with a a missile, and this also drew a lot of attention, and the reason being that America's command of satellite technology is absolutely crucial to the way they would fight any putative war. Now, of course, I don't think these countries think that they will ever go to war. I certainly hope they they don't think that, but simply the, the knowledge of how the balance of power is shifting, and who could do what to whom if it ever came to it, does affect the way that they relate to each other. To give you a concrete example, in 1996, there was the Taiwan Straits Crisis and uh, China was uh, more than usually belligerent in its language towards Taiwan and the US responded by sending aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Straits as a very visible demonstration of force Uh, when I was last in China I was talking to a Chinese strategist about that and what would happen again if there was another Taiwan Straits crisis and he said well I'll bet you one thing the Americans wouldn't send an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Straits again and uh, that's certainly their sense that it's not like they're going to come to blows, but it's this sl- sense of re- a shift in relative power and therefore what's possible for each country to do. And over the long term, again, the Chinese pl- uh, strategists, the people who rolled out to talk to the likes of me, uh, you know, they don't take a, an overtly belligerent line saying America out of the Pacific now. But if you say to them... Uh, You know, do you think it's natural that America's the dominant power in the Pacific? Do you think they'll still be the dominant power in the Pacific in 20, 30 years' time? They'll say, well, the people I spoke to, you know, who knows when it'll happen. But in the end, America will find it can't afford this. They see it very much in financial terms and that they will have to pull back. And that is certainly an anxiety among the kind of group of Western-oriented powers that are in that part of the world so that you certainly particularly the Japanese, but also the Singaporeans, the Australians, there's a sort of lurking worry that, well, maybe, uh, you know, if the the Americans pull back, as a Singaporean leader put it to me, we'll all all end up as part of the Sinosphere. And uh, they're uneasy about it, and they don't quite know how to play it. But that's the sort of bigger game that's underway in the Pacific. And I think one can't underestimate its importance to the evolution of geopolitics, because this is... You know, the centre of the world now the, 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 centre, the, the place where the world's most dynamic economies are the, uh, the biggest countries in the world the, the era, the Cold War era, Europe was the crucible of international politics but I think that increasingly it will be the Asia-Pacific area and therefore the balance of power, the perceived balance of power there is absolutely critical to how events are going to play out a few words briefly then on Europe and then on global governance which brings us back actually to to the US and China. On Europe I think it's a very interesting obviously if you're living in Europe it's interesting but it's also interesting for what it says about globalization and the political effects of globalization what's happened to the European Union because the EU was in a sense a classic globalization project in a political as well as an economic sense and what I mean by that is that it was structured around an explicitly political logic but using economics for political ends so that the whole idea of the European unity was that let's do lots of things together economically, let's break down trade barriers and that will have a beneficial political effect. So you start with the construction of a coal and steel community, the single market, the single currency... But, you know, although it's sometimes portrayed here in Britain as a kind of great conspiracy and they were dragging us into a political union, actually they were completely open about it. The whole idea always was political, that, you know, Europe had been bedeviled by war, that by creating economic ties, you create ties of prosperity, friendship, a win-win logic, and we all uh, end up in a much better political state. I think the danger is that we're now in a process in which that logic has gone into reverse, and that rather than the economic relations creating better feelings and better ties between countries, it's actually creating acrimony, bad feeling between countries. You saw it with uh, Greece and Germany, very kind of heated rhetoric in Greece about, uh, you know, recollections of the Second World War, German occupation and so on. These are precisely the kind of images and the kind of talk that the European Union was meant to banish, but which has been brought back by the economic crisis. And you're now seeing it played out again with the uh, tremendous uh, Irish anxiety about being force-fed a bailout and that headline that I read to you about anger at Germany grows. Well, it actually didn't just refer to Ireland. It also, uh, the article went on about unease in France, about unease in Britain, about a newly assertive Germany. Whether that's fair or not, you can be the judge. But it's ironic that the European project was really about solving the German problem and if we're now back to the point where everybody's worrying about a too powerful Germany, a too assertive Germany I think it tells you about something about uh, what's going wrong. Finally to this whole issue of global governance I mentioned that the the major institutional political effect of uh, the economic crisis uh, in international relations terms was the development of the G20. I hesitate to say formation. It had met at finance ministers' level before, but the first ever G20 summit happens in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of the fall of Lehman Brothers. And it's a, it's a really significant moment because it's, it's the moment at which the West says, yeah, we do acknowledge that actually we can't run the world as a Western club anymore. Uh, the G7 uh, is is no longer sufficient. We have to have the big emerging powers come on in China, India, Brazil Argentina, Saudi Arabia etc. And for a while it appears to work quite well Uh, the G20 summits are important moments in the stabilisation of market sentiment but look at where we are now we've now got to the stage where really on whatever the big global issue is the G20 appears to be blocked so on this question of global economic imbalances, as the Americans like to refer to them, that phrase is almost it was almost impossible to simply put that phrase into a G20 communique because uh, the Chinese were unhappy with the underlying diagnosis Um, so at the G20 summit they, they end up with a sort of Ultimate kind of uh, fallback of desperate bureaucrats, which is they set up an IMF study group to look into do these imbalances exist, etc. But but meanwhile, uh, the uh, the tensions and the cause of the tensions, which is you know for lack of a better phrase, these global economic imbalances, American anger about uh, China's currency, China's anger about America printing money, and the sense that, as the Brazilian finance minister put it, the whole world is getting caught up in a global currency war. The G20 has so far proved incapable of resolving that. If you look at the other big issues of global governance, climate change, the failure of the G20 last week was preceded about a year beforehand by the failure of the Copenhagen climate talks, where, again, you can see that the initial will to cooperate, the, the, the major powers, they're not stupid, they can see climate change is not a problem you can solve as an individual nation, they all uh, take it seriously enough to commit to to wanting to do something about it to uh, convening this summit but once you get beyond the initial opening line yes this is a problem, yes we need to cooperate to do it, you then get into immediately uh, deep problems, uh, problems of equity, problems of uh, who who takes the hit and um, underlying it uh, Struggle really between East and West, or between developing nations and advanced nations about uh, whose fault this is. The the, the Chinas and the Indias will say, well, you know, all the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is the result of the industrial revolutions in the West. Arguments about equity, where the U.S. will say, well, look, you cannot possibly not include China in this because China is now the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide. And the Chinese saying, yeah, but on a per capita basis. America still emits four times as much as the average Chinese. Why should you lock us into relative poverty? Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult argument, a very emotive argument, and no sign of anybody really making any progress to crack it, as I think we will find when they have another go in Cancun in about two or three weeks' time. Those things—the the economic crisis and climate change—I think probably the most dramatic examples of what I call zero-sum logic setting in. But you can see it in a, in a whole range of other issues, in the difficulties that we're finding in uh, finding a joint approach to nuclear proliferation, in the emergence of talk of struggle for resources, a food crisis, and oil—worry uh, 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 about declining oil resources. These are things which you can see are global problems. That ideally you would have a global solution, but actually rivalry and competition between major powers is beginning to be to define the way that we're treating them. I've now, I think, been talking for my allotted 45 minutes. So there is uh, obviously the question of what we do now. How, how do we get round it? But perhaps we can leave that for the question and answer session. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs>
0: Okay, many thanks to Gideon for that fascinating uh, and challenging talk perhaps slightly depressing talk in some respects uh, yeah, if people have to go uh, want to make their way out uh, we've got about uh, 20 minutes or so for question and answer and discussion and I'll start taking notes now um, there'll then be an opportunity for people to have a look at the book outside and Gideon will sign copies if people would like that as well so we'll go on until about 7.45 right I have a first question just here
2: Yes, uh, thank you for your talk. Um, We obviously live in a dangerous world today. Two points occur to me. In two years' time, we may have Sarah Palin or another very right-wing president who wants to be very assertive. And there's a certain amount of mutual paranoia between China and the US and I can remember people uh, during during the Iraq war, the neo-con saying, in 15, 20 years time, China will be the biggest military, economic, and political threat to the United States. And we've got to take it out before then. And you, you know, we could have people who want to ramp up. Is, it, is that a, a real danger that uh, over Taiwan,
1: you know, uh, sorry, uh, do, do, do you want, to, there's a second question? Sorry? Well,
2: North, North Korea and, and uh, you know, Iran, we could all, you know, economic prosperity depends on very on, really, world peace. And the second question was, do you see a danger of a 2008 type uh, banking crisis and a property crisis that we had in the West happening in China. I am told, for example, that m- most of the banks in China are, in fact, bad banks, because they're stuffed full of uh, loans that we, in, in the West, would regard as, as 100% bad.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, on the, you know, the, the prospect of actual war between the US and China, I, I hope I'm right in thinking that the thing that kept the peace between the US and the USSR, which is nuclear deterrence. Uh, would probably prevent them doing anything absolutely crazy like coming to blows over Taiwan, although there's always the risk of miscalculation. And I think that one of the things that's slightly alarming is that whenever things get bad between America and China, the first thing that goes is military-to-military discussions. That's always the first thing that's suspended, but it's terribly important that actually they do talk to each other because if a war happens, it will be, I think, a misunderstanding rather than... uh, you know, a deliberate t- choice by either leadership. Although, as you say, uh, we could have more radical leaderships in both in the US certainly and maybe even in China. Uh, I mean, I think that one of the interesting questions about the Obama administration is that you know it was obviously welcomed around the world because it was uh, an internationalist, uh, more softly spoken administration—a welcome change from George W. Bush, as many people saw it. But I wonder whether it, it could just be an interlude because. Uh, if Obama is replaced by a Republican, uh, I mean, clearly Palin would be quite a quite a phenomenon. But uh, but any Republican uh, is liable to take a slight, a harder line. And um, there's a tension in Republicanism about whether, you know, on the ha- one hand they tend to be more free trading than the Democrats, but they also take a more alarmist view of China. And I think the Tea Party. Uh, Republicans are protectionists, actually, as far as one can tell. Um, and you're right that the, in just before 9/11, if you look, if you read what the neocons were saying, they were going on about China. It was very much in their sights. And then, in a way, it sounds awful, but China had a lucky break with 9/11 because America was building up to uh, a, a real focus on the China threat and uh, then gets diverted off into the Middle East and uh, that's more or less where it still is actually Um, but I think that again another good point you make is this undercurrent of nationalism in both countries I think both countries are slightly given to conspiracy theories about what the other one wants done to it I mean I've had occasionally been, you know, interviewed on American talk radio, and you get incredible things people think about China. You know, I'll say something that I think is sort of fairly nuanced about, well, you know, maybe the relationship is a bit more difficult than we thought. And they'll say, yeah, they're out to destroy us. It's still a communist country. They want to take us over. You know, it, it comes out very quickly all that stuff. Um, but equally in China, if you if you read accounts of what's said on the internet, there are there are enormous conspiracy theories about the U.S. Uh, books that do very well, the one called Currency Wars, which actually takes on this whole argument that America has duped China into uh, putting all its assets into the dollar and that the US won't deliberately devalue the dollar as a way of destroying Chinese wealth Uh, And indeed, which may be why the Chinese reacted so neuralgically to quantitative easing, because thinking, aha, you know, maybe this is it, maybe this is what's beginning to happen. And similarly, one of the arguments you hear in China about why they mustn't revalue their currency is that this is how America destroyed Japan. They they believe that the Plaza Accord in the mid-80s was the moment when Japanese decline set in because the Americans forced the Japanese to let the yen rise in value. Now, my friends who follow Japan tell me that's actually a misapprehension. There were other problems, but nonetheless, that's you know you hear that from Chinese officials. So there is a, a deep kind of suspicion that maybe America actually wishes China no no good, uh, and that could come out as as things uh, become tenser. Um, property crisis and crashes in China. Sure, I mean there is a. You know anyone you talk to is involved in that world says there is a bubble growing, and uh, that you know the half the apartment blocks in Shanghai are empty they 've just been bought for speculative purposes, and so on. All I would say is that I think that it 's entirely possible that they will they will have a property crash it 's entirely possible they'll have inflation and so on but uh, you know as you mentioned my period at The Economist. I remember in the 1990s, uh, you know, more or less ever since the Chinese miracle got going, uh-huh. there have been people saying, "Oh, the whole thing's about to blow." And uh, they said it uh, after Tiananmen Square. They said it in the 90s, with uh, it was then the state-owned enterprises, the banks were meant to be a house of cards, and yet somehow it's kept rolling at sort of nine to ten percent a year. And of course, it won't keep growing at that rate forever. But so far, China has proved more resilient than perhaps one might imagine. And, that, and maybe these very high ro- rates of growth allow you to grow out of thing, uh, you know, problems and bad debts in banks, bad debts in state-owned enterprises. If you're growing at that kind of rate, it covers a lot of sins. And uh, again, I, uh, last point, uh, you know, people make the analogy with the rise of Germany in the mid-19th century. I mean, just think of what Germany went through. Uh, two world wars, hyperinflation, Great Depression, still emerges in the 1950s as a major economic power. So I don't think, you know, China has got big problems, political problems, economic problems, but to, to go from that to say, well, you know, at some point the whole thing's going to go pop and we'll discover it was an illusion. I don't believe that.
2: Okay, yes. I go ahead. Um, bearing in mind the title of your book, when you look into your crystal ball, uh, do you, would it be right to assume that you're deeply pessimistic?
1: Well, I, I've struggled with this. I can't decide, actually. Uh, it, um, it, was, it was funny. When I finished the book, uh, I was worried that it was too pessimistic, and now I'm worried it was too optimistic, actually, because uh, <laughs> I finished it in January, and you know, I thought, you know, am I laying this on a bit thick? But uh, actually... You know The way things have gone at the G20, the way things are going in Europe and uh, the failure of the US economy to to revive the backlash against Obama, I do think uh, none of that's particularly optimistic. But the way I put it in the book, and maybe it's a bit of a cop-out, actually I don't think I put it in the book, maybe I should have, but I I think the book is kind of medium-term pessimistic because I think that we've gone through this period of the age of optimism to a much more difficult and troubled period economically, politically and in international relations. And I think that one of the things that's happening is that we are inevitably questioning a lot of the liberal economic and liberal political ideas that uh, seem to have a, most of the answers in the previous period. Um, I guess the reason that in a long-term pessimist, a long-term optimistic, uh, is that I, I do think that uh, maybe it's an act of faith, but we have been through much worse periods actually in the west it's easy to forget but you know in the 1930s there was a similar backlash against liberal economics liberal politics uh, and with much more cause perhaps because that you know that really was the great depression the rise of fascism etc and there were people who did uh, a lot of people who lost faith in those kind of uh, nostrums of of western uh, civilization almost uh, but in the end you know th- those ideas proved more resilient than than the alternatives so I think that, they, that, that uh, it's a question of sort of sorting through what's right, what's wrong I mean, I, I think I'm still you know, basically a political and economic liberal and I do think those ideas are better than the alternatives but they're not looking great at the moment
3: You you said that the failure of of the US economy to recover and Japan is of ageing and slow growth and Europe is crisis hit and that that paints the developed world in rather a a sort of poor light but there seems to be a a very striking difference between parts of the developed world and you you highlighted 17% unemployment rate in America. And by contrast, if you look at core Europe, you have Poland that never had a recession, Sweden's booming, Bavaria has an unemployment rate of one percent, and most people would look at that and, and sort of highlight, if you like, in America that the, the typical response is they've got a balance sheet recession, with too much debt matched by dodgy housing assets. But by contrast, I think that a really interesting dynamic that seems to be not focused on is, is the, growth, the change in growth profile. I mean, you know, the U.S. is essentially service sector and a closed economy. You're, you know, those, those core European countries are very industrially based, very export-oriented, and, and are benefiting. I mean, they, they used to be derided by the Americans as a sort of giant open-air industrial museum. Mm. And now, actually, they're, take, they're playing part of the Asian boom, if you like. Now, if you look at the American response, I mean... QE, of quantitative easing, is an attempt to, to, to buckle the currencies in, I, in Asia, and uh, and and the attempt to get the surplus countries to start to consume and neither of those two things is really going to have any impact on ec- American exports of industrial goods, if you like. So, I mean, with that in mind, do you? Uh, I mean, w- w- first of all, do you agree with that, and, and where does that lead us?
1: Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. That obviously it's uh, you know you, you mentioned some quite uh, relatively small countries. I was thinking as you listed them, you know, Sweden. But Germany is actually is there? Well, there's the
3: 200 million people. In, if you add them all up, with, yeah. with Italy, northern Italy.
1: Yeah, no, and of course Germany is doing extremely well as this export-oriented industrial powerhouse, and uh, you know, have, have very positive about its economic relationship with China. Huge exports to China, and I think you're right that you know within the kind of Western world, there were two different models, and the Anglo-American one preached by my former employers, the Economist, and so on, was did seem to be the in, in the ascendancy the, for a while, the kind of finance-driven. Uh, service sector-driven, etc. And I think that it's interesting the way the debate has shifted within the West, so that suddenly unfashionable ideas like industrial policy come back. Uh, you know, again, it was one of those sort of "Have I read this right?" moments when I read Peter Mandelson going to Paris saying he wanted to learn from the French about industrial policy. You know, which again would have been absolutely unthinkable uh, 10 to 15 years ago. And, obviously, a loss of confidence in in finance as a source of, uh, you know, stable growth. Uh, And and everybody trying to export, they were saying, we've got to have exports, you know, whereas before that was regarded as kind of slightly suspect, mercantilist language if you talked about the importance of exports to your economy. Um, The difficulty is that we, we can't all export our way out of trouble. Uh, Otherwise, unless the moon starts taking in exports from from the world as a whole. And it's not clear to me that, uh, although the intellectual leap has been made by by Obama, by Cameron and and so on, that that the projections for what America thinks it needs to do don't seem to me credible in terms of the expansion of exports. Uh, So, you know, maybe they will then start looking for other ways of balancing the current account and the trade deficit, which again leads us back to this question of protectionism. And I think that, uh, you know, as I understand it, protectionism is not great for anyone really, but, but if anybody would cope better, it would be a big, quite self-sufficient economy like the United States. So it would be more of a disaster for the rest of the world than for the US, which again makes it plausible, particularly if you combine it with what we were talking about earlier, a sort of revival of nationalism. Uh, because of course protectionism is a kind of economic form of nationalism so I take protectionism quite seriously although as I say there are various people who will tell me calm down, it's never going to happen it's impossible in the globalised world and so on and supply chains are too interlinked It'll, you know, it's, it's not, couldn't happen I think there are studies of previous cycles of globalisation which have tended to conclude that actually they can be put into reversal, they have been in the past uh, so I don't think it's impossible
0: Any
3: other questions? Yes. Hi. Uh, I think one of your earlier points was uh, regarding the U.S. budget deficit and how they don't seem to be able to address it uh, at the moment. I think if you looked at at the uh, QE reports issued by the Federal Reserve uh, two weeks ago, uh, wouldn't that, in theory... Uh, inflate the U.S. dollar, thus devaluating the currency and leading to a substantial increase in exports, a decrease in imports, and thus a reduction in the budget deficit of the U.S. And then my question also is, um, in, in regards to your theory of the U.S. entering, um, being, again, a... a Isolated in, in the sense that maybe eliminating their exports and their imports and, and eliminating their trade and entering into a closed economy. What is the time span of that? Is that.
1: Well, look, I, I don't think it'll ever be as clear cut as that, you know, but, uh, but I think it's, it's a drift. Uh, and it's very much dependent on whether the economy revives. I mean, if you're if they can do it other ways by, for example, the scenario that you outlined by just devaluing the dollar and sort of destroying the value of uh, foreigners' holdings and so on and making American exports more competitive maybe that's the route they'll go although that will hardly be that that in itself is obviously enormously disruptive it's another form of disruption but uh, if that doesn't work then I think, you know, I think, as I said protectionism isn't an idea that anybody particularly embraces Americans do least you know the official level have a fairly entrenched memory of what happened in the 1930s and that the Smoot-Hawley tariffs were a bad idea and you don't want to do that so it's not like they're rushing for that but uh, one wonders whether at a certain point they run out of options uh, and then again I don't think it's you know it would be a case of a president sort of giving an address from the Oval Office and saying yeah we're going we're going for a closed economy chaps it would be uh, it would be an accretion of measures uh, you know, Congress passing stuff, Obama deciding, or whoever succeeds him deciding. Actually, this time I won't veto it. Maybe we, you know, maybe we should listen to the Krugmans of this world, and actually have a 10% tariff on Chinese goods and see whether that'll shake them up. And then the logic of a trade war begins to set in. And you saw, actually, interestingly, when uh, this talk was was rising up two or three weeks before the G20, suddenly the you know the Chinese start. Uh, appearing to experiment with a ban on rare earth, the export of rare earths, you know, which are these very important minerals, which at the moment they produce 97% of and they had done this with Japan when they were having the clash with the Japanese over the Senkaku Islands. Well, there the two names. I apologize if I've offended anyone by using the wrong name. Uh, and uh, similarly, uh, then there was some suggestion just for a couple of days that, uh, that the similar ban was... Be, put it, being put in place with regard to the US and the Chinese come out and make a statement and say oh no 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 no, we're not going to do that we wouldn't do that but of course the idea has been planted and uh, that's how the kind of logic of, of a trade war would, would get going I think.
0: We have a question towards the uh, A couple of questions there I think yep you first and then
2: very much i have two short questions one is related
3: with afghanistan Mm. Uh, I mean you haven't touched upon uh, very much, Uh, what do you see the prospect of war in Afghanistan? Uh, The second one is uh, what do you think about some uh, middle range powers and their maneuvers uh, in specific regions like Turkey, uh, Brazil and India, etc. What will be their uh, power projections at sure?
1: Well they're both very important questions. Uh, I mean Afghanistan I think that, you know, the, the bit I didn't go into in the sort of puncturing of the optimism, i, I focused very much on the economics. But the other thing that, that happens, of course, is the Iraq and Afghan wars and this sense in the U.S. that began, as I said, with the first Gulf War that actually, you know, we can use our military and that it can, it's incredible. We can knock over any country around the world and, and, and uh, in the last resort. That's, that's the, our ultimate guarantee that begins to fade as they realize well yeah you can win the initial victory but then you seem to be stuck there years later taking casualties and so on Um, you know I, i don't think that they're going to win in afghanistan in the sense of stabilizing the situation uh they may be able to, through this offensive, bring casualties down. I mean, it will go up in the short term and then they'll go down again. But I think the Americans, you know, the, the military are already sort of muttering about staying beyond 2015, which is not the political deadline that Obama's set. And, you know, the question is is how long they will last. My guess is that, that you'll begin to get withdrawals a little bit after the 2012 presidential election. and. Uh, that they'll then cross their fingers that this policy of Afghanisation will work. The one thing they want to avoid is a kind of Vietnam scenario where two years after they leave, you know, the Taliban roll back into Kabul. Um, But I think that, broadly speaking, the kind of intelligence people, the people who have to think about the world globally, are now arguing that Afghanistan's a mistake in terms of the war on terror because it ties down so much resources. Uh, you know you talk to uh, the Brits, and they will say look it 's crazy that you know we in this period of austerity that we have so many troops and so much money going into Afghanistan, and if this is meant to be about terrorism that 's actually not where the threat is it 's now in yemen it 's in somalia it 's in Pakistan, and why are we it 's just a waste of valuable resources and if that 's what the Prime Minister is being told, which I think at least from some courses he is uh, that's that 's bound to at some point lead to a, a withdrawal and a sort of uh, you know again it won't, it won't be absolutely clear cut there will be advisors left and they will continue to use missile strikes and and so on but I think it's on a downward trajectory that war <laughs> um, I think this, this question of, of mid ranking powers is terribly important um, because of course you know in this sort of rather simplified US China world it's not actually a G2 world uh, and there will be a competition on all these issues to enlist support um, and it will vary issue by issue. So that, but I think that, again, one of the sort of slight sobering things that the US and the West in general has, is learning is that we assumed uh, that democracies would stick together. Um, and so that during the election, John McCain proposed kind of replacing the UN, or, least not explicitly say that, but that was the idea, with an alliance of democracies. And this wasn't just a Republican idea. There were people, you know, the, the current head of policy planning and under Obama, a woman called Anne-Marie Slaughter, I remember seeing give a speech here, was also a big proponent of the alliance of democracies. And the idea was that we share the same values after all, the world's going democratic, and this is a fantastic way of kind of leveraging uh, Western power, if you like. And yet we found that actually, Democracies don't always stick together and indeed in some ways Turkey has become a much less comfortable partner for the US Now that it's more democratic because it's also more Islamist Uh, the AKP who the Obama administration actually kind of put quite a lot of hope and faith in initially is uh, Proving a very awkward partner for them on a range of issues Iran uh, You know they they try to negotiate this side deal with the Iranians the Americans are very kind of freaked out by the deterioration in uh, Turkish Israeli relations uh, again, Turkey was regarded as the kind of voice of moderate Islam. Uh, so, so that's I think quite a stark example of how um, things uh, won't. These mid-ranking powers, even if they're democratic, even if they have strong trading relationships with America, won't necessarily side with America. Uh, but it'll depend issue by issue. I mean, India is a very interesting example, where on climate change they were actually in the Chinese developing world camp in uh, in Copenhagen. And yet, the Indians are also very concerned about this outstanding territorial dispute they have with China, which they claim the Chinese are ramping up, and welcomed Obama with open arms a couple of weeks ago, signed plenty of arms deals. So, that from the Chinese perspective, they're worried that there's a tacit policy of containment of China taking place with America building up allies with alliances with Japan, Australia, India, uh, the base in Singapore, Korea. So if you're sitting in Beijing, you're suddenly thinking, ah, you know, what's going on here? They're they're not too happy about it either. Okay, I think this will
0: have to be our last question. Okay.
1: It's mean, just really your, your your take on it. I mean, as the Chinese economy grows, I mean, what are the, the options or the prospects for for democracy and any attempt to limit the power of the Communist Party in in Chinese life? Are, are there going to be challenges there as the economy improves? Well, that was that was always the working assumption, as I said, and I don't think uh, you know, I, I said. Uh, we are going through this period of sorting through, well, what was right, what was wrong. I mean, I, I think that it was clearly naïve to think that there was some sort of mechanical or immediate relationship between economic growth and therefore they will become democratic. But I think equally it would be a mistake to think that, uh, well, you know, to buy the sort of culturalist argument that the Chinese just were, you know, completely uninterested in, in these ideas um, and that the debate is over and indeed clearly the debate is in fact going on because Wen Bao and various other people have been talking about democratization actually using the word democracy word uh, as, a, as a goal for China and uh, I was talking again to my colleagues in, in Beijing who follow this much more closely and they said it's very interesting to hear Chinese Prime Minister use these words because they were actually Words that were quite frequently censored out of the official media. There was a banned word and other prime ministers talking about it. So there is a debate. And uh, people say, I, th- I think probably if, there'll be a, if there's an opening up, it won't be, you know, suddenly they announce one man, one vote tomorrow. It'll be an opening of civil liberties, a slightly freer press, an effort to create a more independent judiciary, uh, and, and so on. And, and that's how it will roll. Uh, the one qualification, though, is I think that you know we have seen and one of the reasons people assume china would change this process work in other asian countries you know indonesia moved from dictatorship to democracy south korea the philippines so people said well you know maybe china will go the same after it's, it's going through the same process of export led industrialization and so on but it seems to me china's just a different proposition because of its huge size different you know very different history very traumatic history under communism uh, fears of separatism all of, and, and the fact that it is actually ruled by a communist party not by military dictatorship all of those things I think make the transition to democracy that much more problematic but that's not to say it will never happen
0: a suitably qualified yeah. missing note to end on. Okay, thank you very much for your questions and for the discussion. Um, there are copies of Gideon's book available outside if people want to check it out or buy a copy, and he will be here for the next 10 15 minutes to sign any copies if people would like to. Uh, but I'd just like to say thank you very much for a fascinating and very wide ranging talk. You've raised a lot of really crucial questions for contemporary international relations, so thank you.